what I saw in the data was that people with higher levels of investable assets had a higher proportion of them using accountants as well. Any financial planner and any accountant would tell you that a good working relationship between those two professionals is really, really key for high net worth households, as well as lawyers as well. So you get into ultra high net worth households and establishment of trusts and complex financial planning strategies. You really need to make sure that your professionals are working together. Welcome to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with your host, Joseph Curry, a CFP professional who is going to help you learn how to simplify your retirement planning. This podcast is all about helping you answer those burning questions you've had about your retirement possibilities and making a plan to get there through retirement planning education, resources, and expert interviews. Joe will help you get clear on your retirement vision, how to simplify it, and what you'll need specifically to achieve or maintain your financial freedom. Ready to live out your retirement dreams and create future opportunities for the ones you love? Then let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. I am your co-host, Joe Curry, along with my co-host, Lindsay Wilson. How are you today, Lindsay? I'm well, Joe. How are you? I can't complain, although it's hard to believe that uh, summer's coming to an end. It is. It is. I know we're into fall. I've seen leaves drop and change. It's unbelievable. It is. Yeah. I think we have a a little bit of a longer episode, so we'll maybe jump right into our intro here. Yeah. So I'm kind of excited. This is someone that I've followed for a long time, Global Mail. I've seen him speak at many different conferences and events. So uh, Preet Banerjee was on to join me as a guest. That's right. Dr. Preet Banerjee, right? Because he has his PhD from the University of Toronto. That's right. And that was some of the things that we were talking a little bit about. So he did all of his research on the value of advice. And there's been a lot of industry studies around the value of advice, but you can't help but think those are a little bit biased when they're coming from the industry. So anyway, it was interesting to get Preet's kind of take on that. And maybe I won't spoil too much of it, but a couple of the highlights that I thought I got out of the conversation were, especially in the lower market, as far as, you know, investable assets, I guess you could say, is how important it is that if you are working with someone that they're doing financial planning, not just investment management. Yeah. But it seemed like the research when he looked at it was for the more higher net worth that there's definitely some significant value in almost all cases. And his thinking behind that, which again, you're going to hear him talk about it, was just that in most cases, the advisors working with those types of clients have been around for a while and they've survived through experience to probably just adding some additional value. But that's just one of the things we talked about. That's right. And he also, you know, shares some of his insights on the evolution of the financial advice industry from transactional beginnings to more the value of financial advice, the more holistic approach demanded by today's landscape as well. Yeah. So I guess uh, with that, let's uh, jump into the episode. Okay, Preet, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on here today. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Yeah, no, it's our pleasure. So we'll jump right in here because there's uh, lots we want to talk about. So you've recently completed your thesis on the value of advice. So what I was hoping we could chat about today was a little bit of about you know, your findings. And before we jump into that, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what sent you down this road of doing this research. Sure. And thank you so much for having me on to talk about it. Yeah, so the thesis is the culmination of six years of part-time doctoral studies. 
And the reason that I was pulled into doing this, there's multiple reasons. The first I would have to say is my primary supervisor who pulled me in and persuaded me that this was something that I should do from a career perspective. We had worked together on a few small presentations as part of my work at the University of Toronto. He was a professor there, still is. And he got familiar a little bit about what I was doing in terms of trying to educate the masses on personal finance and having been a former advisor. It kind of put me in a unique position where I had sort of this position to speak to a lot of people and I had the experience of being in the industry. And early in my career, I think made a few enemies talking about the value of what financial advisors can bring to the table, what they have brought to the table. And some people in the industry weren't too happy with some of the things that I talked about. So I found that this was something that I gravitated towards because I was an advisor in the industry. And there's some things that just didn't make a lot of sense to me in terms of what we did and how we delivered value to households. So my supervisor told me, he said, well, you know, think about this doctorate as a way to really shape the next 10 years of your career. What do you want to focus on? How do you want to define it? This is what the opportunity is. So think about what that question would be that you want to answer, become an expert in that, and then that will guide the next 10, 20 years of your life. And he's absolutely correct. I latched onto this idea of the value of advice, because one of the things that I think people will hear and see all the time is there's a lot of people who say financial advisors have no value or they're ripoff artists and what have you. And we all know as well that there are a lot of financial advisors who are really smart, really talented, really put their clients' interests first. And so how do you square all this? Because there's very loud people on both sides of that argument. And it was a very undifferentiated sort of analysis that existed out there. People kind of painted the world as black and white. It's advisor good or advisor bad, or everyone can do it themselves and and what have you. So I wanted to dive deeper into that and say, okay, so what is going on here? There's got to be more to it than just one camp versus the other just yelling at each other. Yeah, that's totally fair. I'm really appreciative that you've got it and done this because I think it is an important question to answer. Maybe before we dive into some of the findings, just you mentioned how there was things that you were kind of wondering just on your own, uh, whether they made sense and what we were trying to do for clients or advisors in general. Can you maybe just speak to a couple of those things? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we can go pretty far back and talk about the evolution of the industry, but go back far enough and financial advice, it was really just about transactions for individual stocks and securities. Right. There was an evolution, I would say mid to late seventies. May 1st, 1975, I believe, is known as May Day in the industry. And that's when commissions for trading securities were deregulated by the SEC. So up until that point, didn't really matter who you went to or how much you're buying or how little. The trading commissions were fixed and they were pretty steep. So for people providing advice, it was really about who's giving better advice on what stocks to buy and when to sell and and what have you. But once trading commissions became deregulated, this spawned the growth of discount brokerages. And this allowed people to compete on commissions that they charge. And discount brokers basically said, well, hey, if you want to do it yourself, you know, you can call in and we'll only charge you a hundred bucks a trade or whatever it was at the time, still high by today's standards, but a lot less than what it would have been if you're working through sort of a full service broker. And so the industry for financial advice evolved in response to that, and they switched from just providing advice on individual securities to portfolio management. So they were focused with, you know, how do the different parts of your 
portfolio, these different individual securities, how do they work together? Let's figure out your risk tolerance, your time horizon, your goals, and what have you. And portfolio management became the dominant sort of aspect of financial advice for a very long time. And to this day, there's still a lot of advisors who only focus on portfolio management. And again, the world has evolved and people are realizing that there's more to it than just portfolios. And with the academic research into the value of portfolio management and the costs and the cost matters hypothesis, a lot of people will say something like portfolio management has been solved. And it's really sort of a margin compression game at this point. And even a lot of financial advisors who only purport to offer portfolio management, they will outsource that portfolio management to turnkey solutions because it's pretty standardized for the most part in terms of diversification, asset allocation, optimize, all that stuff. So now people are racing to offer it on a cheaper and cheaper way from the movement from mutual funds to exchange traded fund structures, a bit of a switch from active management to passive management, what have you, driving costs down. And so the value that could be added by financial advisors in the realm of portfolio management, that was also being challenged and severely disrupted. So now the latest sort of paradigm has been a shift towards wealth management and being more holistic with people's financial situations. Because it's one thing to take someone who's got a lot of money and say, hey, here's some tweaks we can make to your portfolio. Because for the most part, that can be all automated now with technology. So that's not really right. a big value add, a big value proposition for advisors. It's more about, hey, maybe you should be saving more money or you realize you have absolutely no insurance and your plan is perfect as long as nothing happens to you between now and 65. And as we know, life happens and changes your trajectory pretty much every single year. So now this, this latest sort of model of financial advice, I think that's more current today, is more holistic in nature. And it's about understanding that behavior coaching management and working with the human side of the equation of financial advice, these things are much more important than the portfolio management. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And I find that a lot of consumers still think that advisors just do portfolio management, probably because of maybe things they've heard or just past experience. But yeah, a lot of people that reach out to us initially are just asking about what our investment philosophy is and what our track record is and all these kind of things, mm. rather than kind of looking at it from the bigger picture of what are they trying to achieve, right? Now that said, since I started doing the podcast and putting a lot more content, I have been getting more questions around, I need help planning my income so I'm not paying too much tax and, and things like that, which is good to see that focus changing a little bit. So maybe now we could just talk a little bit about what are some of the key findings that you've had in the research you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. And to start with that, let me explain a little bit about the methodology because I think that yeah. informs the results. So as I alluded to earlier, people kind of look at the world in a black and white perspective. You had advised households and you had unadvised households and people were just sort of comparing them. And there's a lot of studies that compared the performance of people with and without advisors. But it's very sort of binary. One, it assumes that there's only two types of households, those who use an advisor and those who don't. And it also assumes that every financial advisor is the same. So the first thing I did was I differentiated the market for financial advice into 18 discrete channels. Think of it as you have full service advisors, you have bank branch advisors, you have bank branch planners, you have bank tellers. Some people will say that their primary channel of advice is an accountant. Others will say, no, it's social media and I use some kind of execution service just for the execution, but my primary channel of advice 
might be a financial influencer. It might be Rob Carrick's articles in the Globe and Mail. It could be a podcast, whatever it is. And so people have multiple sources of advice and those different types of advice are not uniform. So that was the first thing was to separate the market for financial advice into these categories. So there's 18 discrete channels, but you can loosely categorize them into five groupings. And that is execution with advice. So that would be more traditional financial advisors who are providing advice and handle the actual investment and deployment of your funds. You have execution with what I'll call directed advice channels. So this would be more like a robo-advisor. So you go to this one-stop and they do manage your money, but it's not really bespoke advice. It's kind of investment advice in a can. You have execution without advice. So for people in the industry, that would be known as OEO, order execution only, which is a discount brokerage. So there's no advice whatsoever, but you can go in as an individual, put your money on this platform and invest it in pretty much anything you want without any guardrails at all. Then you have advice without execution. So these would be in the realm of money coaches. It could also be financial influencers, podcasts, what have you. And then there's no advice, no execution, which was sort of the reference category, which is a bank teller because they don't provide advice and they don't sort of invest any money. They just are there for your deposits. So those are the five broad categories, but within each of those, there's also multiple types of advice. So that's one half of the equation. The other half was looking at the household. And we just can't assume that there are two types of households, those who want to do it themselves and those who use an advisor. There's so much more to it than that. And the literature is pretty rich talking about things like financial capability. So different households have just different levels of financial capability. And some of those factors include income, education, assets that they bring to the table or bring to the relationship already, their level of financial literacy. There is financial agency, you know, how much people want to do it themselves. And it turns out there are people who are really smart and knowledgeable about the world of, you know, making money decisions and still use a financial advisor. And what's interesting is that when you have that combination, the nature of the relationship is qualitatively different because What the research has previously found is that people who are financially capable and high financial literacy, financial advice is a complement to that. And they can actually achieve more together because they're in a position to understand what is being talked about and make effective decisions. Different levels of financial agency and capability, sometimes financial advice is a substitute for financial literacy. So it's really complex looking at individuals and trying to figure out what they bring to the table and how important they are to their overall outcome. So that was one of the main findings was looking at what's called the endogeneity of the household. And what is it about them that is actually determining how well they end up in the future? So one of the ways of measuring that, I asked people, we created a scale of financial decision responsibility. And some of the questions were, when it comes to determining how much you save into an investment account, Who's responsible for how much you save? Is it you? And you've decided, I've got all this money and I know I'm going to put it away. I just need someone to execute this for me. Or did you have no clue and a financial service provider said, you need to save $1,000 more per month or whatever. Who is responsible for that behavior? When it comes to everything, you know, picking your portfolio, your investment selections, your tax planning. So it was a compendium of different facets of financial advice and trying to figure out 
ultimately how responsible is the individual for making those decisions. And what I was trying to get at that was, as I alluded to earlier, is it the case that people who are high income, highly educated, super smart, they're just looking for someone to execute and they probably would have ended up okay if you put a gun to their head and say, you know what, you got to do it yourself. Right. And they're just saying, but yeah, yeah, I could, but I don't want to. I'm willing to pay money to have someone do this for me. Or is it, it is all the financial advisor that's responsible for how well people do. So that was a big part of it as well. And then, of course, controlled for the amount of assets that they brought to the table and what have you. I'm starting so, to see why this took you six years to get through. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, my supervisor will tell you that it should have taken three, but <laughs> um, it was on and off for a little while, but it was also very time consuming overall. So I'll cut to the chase to talk about some of the important findings. I used three different outcome measures. So one of the critiques that I had about the value of advice studies that have been out there that it's always kind of been framed in a portfolio-centric context, meaning the more money you have, that was a gauge of how well you're doing. Right. And that was not reflective of contemporary industry evolution, which is, yes, but we now deal with being holistic and goal setting and figuring out people's values. And other research has basically said, hey, it's clear that the costs of products and advice for many people, especially in the mass market, does not actually cover the value that they provide. So it's kind of like a net negative benefit. And so one of the hypotheses was, well, people therefore must be paying for some intangible benefit of financial advice that doesn't show up in the portfolio. And so these would be maybe emotional considerations like peace of mind. So based on all that, I created a trio of outcome measures. One was portfolio centric, which was level of investable assets. And then there were two other measures that were non-portfolio centric, which kind of aligns with where the industry has been shifting slowly over time. So one was a measure of their comprehensive financial confidence, again, measured across eight different facets of household financial decisions. And the third measure also incorporated non-portfolio centric measure of value, and that was the breadth of advice, which speaks to how holistic is the advice that they're receiving. So when you look at all these different outcome measures and then start looking at, all right, so how well do people end up doing based on these different channels of advice and these multiple outcome measures? And the biggest finding I would say, and I hope people listen to the end because it's going to sound kind of odd, but compared to for the mass market, there is no statistical difference between someone using a financial advisor and someone not getting any advice at all. So there was no statistical difference. Another way of interpreting that, that there was no value added by a financial advisor for the mass market. Now, some people might say, aha, I knew it. And other <laughs> people might say, hmm, interesting. Where it really gets interesting is not only did I control for sort of across channels of advice, but also within channels. So I included some questions that spoke to whether or not people were getting financial planning or not. And when people were getting a financial plan, then, even for the mass market, across all three outcome measures, there was a significant positive benefit to okay. using a financial advisor providing a financial plan. So what that means is, for the mass market, so we're talking people with less than $250,000 of investable assets, call it, a financial advisor that doesn't provide financial planning, there's really no impact. Right. But if they do provide a financial plan, it is a robust impact across multiple measures of efficacy. Now, for higher income households, higher net worth households, 
there was a positive value associated with using a financial advisor, independent of whether or not a financial plan was provided. And I think that kind of jives with what you and I probably noticed. Uh, Correct me if your perspective is different, but if you have a lot of money as a household, say a million dollars plus, you have a pick of some pretty good advisors out. There's a lot of competition, a lot of great advisors. It's not the variability in the quality of advice for people with not a lot of money is massive. Right. You might end up with someone good, but you could also end up with someone who's barely competent, right? They've passed yeah. a two-week self-study course and that's it. And it shows up, I think, in, I guess, in these findings. Yeah. I mean, I think that usually when advisors are working with higher net worth individuals, they've probably been in the industry longer is probably one of the biggest things, right? So they have a lot more experience in most cases from just kind of anecdotal evidence, I guess you could say that, that would be my my thoughts on that. Yeah. And it tends to be the case that if you're really good, you tend to set minimum thresholds for assets yeah. for new households. And over time, and as you get better and more experienced, I think a lot of advisors do gravitate towards, oh, okay, I'll set a minimum of hundred grand. Okay. Now it's 250. Then they get to the million. And then, you know, some of them are higher than that. So those with the most experience and have sort of, there's, I guess, this social proof that more and more people are seeking them and they're willing to sort of meet these thresholds to work with them. That means that they're not available to the mass market. So who are they left with? So if all the quote unquote good ones graduate up to those levels, that means that the average quality of the advisor dealing with the mass market is going to be lower. And that could help explain why we see these results. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Did you see any differences between maybe like the way advisors charge or like commission versus fees, things like that? Or is that kind of outside the scope? Didn't specifically control for that by asking, what is your compensation model? You can loosely tie it to the 18 different channels. So for example, a money coach would, you know, be fee for service, right? You could maybe guess that a lot of independent financial advisors are probably gravitating towards fee-based, but I didn't know explicitly and control for that. No. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. And what about when you're looking at the kind of the channels, if you look at the, say the robo advice channel versus human advice, is there anything stand out there? Yeah, there wasn't the breadth of advice there. So while a lot of people, you know, in the mass market may gravitate towards robo advice, part of that is age dependent as well. Younger people just don't want to deal with human beings (laughs) until they feel that there's maybe something really complex that triggers them to maybe change that perspective. Sure. But in Canada, you know, a robo-advisor really is only giving advice on the portfolio. So may not necessarily give you any advice on life insurance, state planning, how much you should be putting into that portfolio. It basically says, you tell me how much you want to put away, and then we'll figure out what is the appropriate portfolio based on what you tell us your goal is for this account. Whereas the possibility for a really good advisor would be to figure out what their goals are, sit down, understand their values, and then determine, okay, well, you know what? You actually need to ratchet down the risk, but increase the contribution rate. That's going to have a much higher probability of success for this plan. Or there's some tax planning that they can do that maybe an individual self-selecting into some kind of automated service might not be able to figure out, which is getting more and more complex all the time. I think the addition of the FHSA account in terms of what people should be saving into, it's just another variable. And I think people already are overwhelmed with how complex the financial landscape is. 
given the levels of financial literacy, that it's a very tough ask to get people to figure it out all on their own. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, based on what you said, it seems like someone will say in the less than $250,000 kind of threshold, when they're looking for an advisor, for sure, they're looking for an advisor who's doing financial planning and putting together a plan, not just kind of anybody. Now, is there anything you would say for the higher net worth or maybe the people who are approaching retirement? So they've built up their nest egg. Now they're looking to figure out how to turn on an income stream and not pay too much money in tax, all that kind of stuff. Is there anything that differentiates the other end aside from the financial plan or is it still the same idea? Yeah. I mean, what I saw in the data was that people with higher levels of investable assets had a higher proportion of them using accountants as well. And I think, you know, any financial planner and any accountant would probably tell you that a good working relationship between those two professionals is really, really key for high net worth households, as well as lawyers as well. So you get into ultra high net worth households and establishment of trusts and complex financial planning strategies. You really need to make sure that your professionals are working together. Now, whether it's one of them becomes a quarterback that is working with those other professionals and takes lead on managing that relationship, or if you work with them individually, which may be less ideal, because sometimes there can be competition between professionals servicing right. a household and someone's trying to sort of mark their territory. So it's important that your team of professionals, and you do tend to have a team as it's get higher and higher, that they are working productively together to get the best outcome. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's also some checks and balances there too. Something doesn't make sense, right? Or at least the professionals, if they see something doesn't make sense, they can have a conversation about it to make sure it's still in the, in the client's best interest. Mm -hmm. So I heard you speak, I don't know if it's a year or two years ago now, and you spoke a little bit about, so we were talking about maybe why advice is potentially important. You were talking about some of the behavioral side of things. I don't know if you could maybe just touch on maybe a few of the things that, whether it's come from this research or other research you've done that, that you've noticed on that, where an advisor can come in from that standpoint. Yeah, I think probably one of the most important things to recognize is from evolutionary biologists who have pointed out that for millions of years of evolution, we are really focused on surviving until the next morning, right? It's really about short-term thinking. And so as humans, we tend to have this present bias and we kind of ground a lot of our decisions when we don't sit down and think about it and plan. We get kind of more primal when it comes to eating getting into fights, maybe straying in terms of marital relationships. These are primal instincts that we had that were really important for keeping us alive when we were living in caves. And as societies evolved and whatnot, we have these social norms that kind of counteract that a little bit. But money at the end of the day is really about long-term trade-offs. An example is same for retirement, very simple example. If you want to save for the future, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense when you put it down on paper. Yeah, put away a couple hundred bucks a month. You don't really feel it that much. But, you know, hey, wait 40 years and it turns into a million bucks or whatever. And you would say, yeah, of course, that makes a lot of sense. And then you ask someone to actually do it. They're like, okay, but if I give up a few hundred bucks, that means that I can't go out to this restaurant this month or tonight. So what's interesting is that the positive and the negative aspect of that trade-off choice the positive aspect being having a lot more money in the future, if that positive aspect of this trade-off choice is 40 years in the future, it's psychologically minimized in our head, right? In terms of how good that makes us feel. It's like it's minimal. It's like, well, that's 40 years from now. What do I care? Yeah. But the pain of giving up 100, 200 bucks right now that could be otherwise spent on immediate consumption, you feel that now because it affects yeah. you now. And so what seems on paper like a rational trade-off 
doesn't really feel like a good trade-off in the moment. And there are ways to circumvent that, and that is to sit down and plan and talk about trade-offs and making choices that are hard. That's what being an adult is, and people can do it. But we also need to know that even in the best laid plans, we're always finding ways to pull us off our plans and our savings and what have you. That's the human struggle. And I think now there's this movement to say, you know, it's not so much that people are dumb or they're completely irrational. It's that we haven't maybe the perfect grasp of what are all the desires that they have because we place value on social status. We place value on our relationships and what have you. And it's not just about dollars and cents. And I think really good financial planners recognize that, yes, money and the math is one part of it, but like 90% of it is psychology. Yeah, for sure. That's something, you know, when we're talking to a client, especially new potential clients, we're always trying to get clear on what their values are before we dive into the money. So that when we see spending patterns that maybe aren't in alignment with those values, we'd at least have those conversations to try to bring things back into perspective a little easier than just diving right into the money from the start. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, we will go for quite a while here and I respect your time. So I appreciate you coming on today, Pre. Before I let you go, where can people find you and what else are you up to nowadays? Yeah, I'm all over the place. Probably the best point to find all the things that I'm doing is just my main website, which is just preetbanerjee.com. And I should have links. If not, I'll update them soon to all the things that I'm doing. Make sure to check out my YouTube channel. I restarted my column at the Globe and Mail. Now that my thesis is done, I've got a little bit more awesome. time. I'm also the chair of FAIR Canada, which stands for the Foundation for the Advancement of Investor Rights. And that is an organization that is trying to fight for the rights of investors and trying to make sure that the playing field is a little bit more fair. So we are advocating for investors, trying to improve disclosure and commenting on regulatory policy on behalf of investors because it's such a complex world. Yeah. Uh, so that's a very important organization. Very proud to be associated with them. And then Money Gaps, which is a financial technology company. It's software for financial advisors that is designed to give them an economic case for giving holistic advice to people who don't necessarily have a lot of money. So trying to improve access to financial advice for the mass market. Perfect. That's great. Well, thanks again, Pre. I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. If you'd like to see how prepared you are for retirement, we've created a free retirement readiness calculator to help you out. Go to matthewsandassociates.ca forward slash ready to input your retirement information and receive instant feedback to help you evaluate your current retirement readiness. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.